Uh, we're at actually the end of our series in the story. Um, so I, I, I don't know where Ryan Coleman is, but I used the old, the very first graphic he came up with back in September. We, we started back in September focusing in on this, trying to go through the storyline of the Bible where we go from the book of Genesis that starts in a garden and, and starts with, with, with two trees, actually. You have two trees in the garden. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, and, and the tree of life. And, um, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that, that awesome moment, that incredible opportunity to choose to surrender your will to God or to choose to kind of be your own God and go your own way. And then at the end of the Bible, you have the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you only have one tree. You don't have two trees. You have one tree, and it's, the, and it's one of the trees from the garden. It's the tree of life. You don't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? It's because back in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that opportunity to make a decision. In heaven, those in heaven already have made their decision. And they get an opportunity to experience the fruit of that decision for eternity. Um, we're, this morning, we're going to recognize the fact that as we've been going through this story, we've been talking about God's dream for his people, and how after the brokenness of, of our rebellion from God, God kept on reiterating this point, I am for you. My dwelling wants to be with you and your sin breaks us apart and separates us out, but I'm desperately desiring to be with you. And then all of a sudden the prophets and everything they were looking forward to came to fruition in the cross. The cross was all of a sudden the point where people saw what he was after all along. And in fact, after Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the grave, scripture records that he actually went to his disciples and basically gave them a, a 101 on everything that they thought they knew, but they missed the point on. He goes back through Genesis and all the other books of the Old Testament and says, okay, I know that you know this book. I know that you know this passage or you think you know this biblical character, but I want to show you how all that was leading to what just happened and what I just accomplished. And then after that, explodes the church and the church goes everywhere. And it's not like everybody loves Jesus. This is awesome. No, people are like, we hate you guys. We're going to mitigate this problem, which is Christianity. And all of a sudden the church starts to continue going out. Um, Nero is executing Christians. Um, the disciples, one after another, are dropping like flies as they're serving and, 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 and proclaiming the good news that, look, we are lost in our sin, but Jesus is our hope. And so they get executed one by one by one. Then there's this one guy left over, Juan. Mr. John. John, and we believe this is John the Apostle, um, the guy who actually walked with Jesus, the guy who, who documented the gospel of John. Super poetic guy. He, he, he's artistic in his, how he writes. Um, really metaphor rich. Um, we're actually going to be studying this summer the book of 1 John, which he wrote. Crazy metaphor rich book. Um, and and he, he, all of a sudden, we see that this guy is the, the last man standing Amongst all the other people that have, have dropped, amongst all the other people who have fallen along the wayside. And now he's such an old guy. The, the Roman Empire, they basically had a, the, this way of handling things. The emperor is God. Say that. And then they were like, the emperor is God. Good. Okay, you pass. If you didn't say that, if you were like, no, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. They'd have to handle that. That's a problem because that's threatening them politically. And so the Roman way of handling things is they'd either execute you or if you're like an old dude like John is, just send him out to Patmos. Patmos is like Alcatraz. The Roman way of, of handling people is that they sometimes would imprison people the way Australia was an imprisonment for the British Empire. They would send them to an island that they couldn't get off of by their own. Either they're handicapped um, by, by some type of disability or they're handicapped by age. And so they're like, if we just send them to that island, they will no longer be a problem for us. And so John gets sent to Patmos. 
and on Patmos in the midst of this crazy period of time where Christians are losing hope. Christians are starting to say, maybe Jesus was Messiah, but at the same time, I'm getting, I'm really, really being sucked into the fact that materialism is such a, it makes so, so much sense to just focus on what you can own and what you can have. Or you know what? Maybe Jesus is true, but he's true amongst a, a lot of different truths. And so in the midst of that, John gets this vision. And it's, it's called, the, we call it the book of Revelation, coming from the, the concept and the word of apocalypse. Now, we all know apocalypse now, or when, if you hear it like apoc- an apocalypse film, it's about the end of the world, right? But that's not what apocalypse means. Apocalypse just means this revelation. It actually um, uh, is, is a genre of Jewish literature. So John is getting this vision from God, and he's writing it in apocalypse literature. And the way Jews would, would interpret apocalypse literature is this. This is a future event of something that's going to happen, but because it's going to happen, it actually has current, everyday impact on our day-to-day life right now. It's future. It's, it's metaphorical. It's symbolic. It, it's an actual historical event, but I'm going to give you a, his, a metaphorical analogy of how, it, how it's supposed to be played out, but that's going to have current, modern-day impact on, on how we do our day-to-day life. And I think that there's a key reason why he, he writes this book. And I don't think it was so that we would actually spend a whole lot of time debating like the end of the world or, or how it's going to happen or, or the order. Because that, that stuff, can, Christians get really sidetracked with that and get really invested in it. But I don't believe that's the purpose or the, 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 the ideal for the book of Revelation. It was a letter to a group of churches to say in the midst of the persecution you're going through, there is hope. In the midst of the craziness of what's going on, this is not the end. They say that um, they've done studies on fallen soldiers, on those who survive and those who don't. And, and in warfare, when if, if a soldier falls, and you have, if you have two soldiers who have similar wounds, similar context, um, oftentimes one will survive over the other. And they've wondered, why is one surviving over the other? And they found that there's a common denominator on those who survive. Oftentimes, the common denominator is something that they hear. You know what it is that they hear? that makes a difference between those who survive and those who don't? It's a sound. The sound of a helicopter. Hearing a helicopter coming in actually ups the survival rate of someone who's dying on the field of battle. Why? Because it's letting them know hope is coming. This is not the end. The book of Revelation is the chopper for the church. It's the chopper for the Christians in times of persecution, the times of hardship, to remind them hope is coming. Hope is on the way. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you could open up to the end of that book, the book of Revelation chapter 20, or if you've got your copy of the story, it's um, chapter 31. We're going to be on page 466. And we're going to be unpacking why it is that John wrote this book. And why why is it that we should read it? And and the first reason I believe that he wrote this book um, and, and passed on this vision about what takes place when, when God brings him out of Patmos and, and into, into the actual like corridors of, of heaven and where he's getting a chance to see things up close and personal and living color. The first reason was this, to, give the, to see the future realistically. To see the future realistically. So again, on page uh, 466, if you've got your copy of the story. This is what he says. Then I saw, and this is at the end of the book, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Another book was open, which was the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it 
And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. The death and Hades, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, that's, that's hell right there. And that's actually, you know, if someone who dies outside of Jesus, they do not go to hell right now. That's, that's a future reality. Hell, hell is a future reality. But what we see here is a, a very descriptive picture of that. And the, the rationale behind helping them understand the, the, the truth of these two things was to help them understand there's a difference between what's going on right now in their life. Um, they get a chance to see the reality that there is a heaven and there's in fact a hell. And here's kind of how you break, break those two down. First off, um, hell is, is described in scripture as a place of darkness and torment. And, and everything that we have in scripture indicates that this is not a, like a small time frame or a momentary thing or you do your, your term and then it's up. It's more of a picture of, of a long-term e- eternal. I mean, that's the word that's used, picture. And as opposed to like being a place where people are like dancing around with pitchforks and like, yeah, this is awesome. This is the party that I've always been waiting for. It's actually the picture of addiction. Um, if, you've known, if you've either gone through addiction yourself, and many of our, uh, us in our church, we, we all have gone through some type of habit that we, we have a hard time shaking, that we, we're not proud of, that we wish we could kick to the curb, but it stays with us. If you're someone who loves someone who's really fallen into addiction, and you've seen the whole course of that, that trajectory, you, what, what's so sad is that when you see them at this point in their addiction, the hardest part is not just seeing them at this point in their addiction. It's the fact that you're seeing them at this point in their addiction, but you remember the way they were before. You remember the way that they were when they were full of life and joy, before, before the substance got out of hand, before they started making the substance their center, right? And over the course of the time of you and, and this person, this friend or spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or parent, you had a chance to watch as just like, it was like this slow minimization of who they used to be until it's like they're the walking dead. They're like a version of themselves that you don't even recognize anymore. That's a good picture of hell. On this planet, while you're living, you have, you've, you're, not only are you created in the image of God, but you, you've got, you know, divine, you got God's, God's put his, his DNA in you. you you're, you're living, breathing. You're an impression of God, and this is huge. And you've got every day this hope that God is bringing you back. Look, you're broken in your sin, but I'm bringing you back. I've got, just accept this and return to me, return to me. And every day that you're walking throughout this planet, no matter how wicked or messed up you are, there's still hope. That's why like when, when people are like, oh man, there's just no hope for me. I'm like, you're breathing, there is. And, and so you, re- you gotta realize that you still have the image of God. But when we die, if we've said with our entire life, I declare my independence from you, God. I declare my independence from you. In death, God says, okay. And what ends up happening is we see all of the things that we were addicted to that are outside of God or things that were good things, but we made the center of us, which is always destructive continues on, and we see the minimization of a person's life to the point where through the course of eternity, they're just becoming more and more fixated on the things that take them away from God without the joy. Have you seen addiction? That's what happens. It's like, I need this more and more, but I'm getting less and less out of it. And that's torment. And that's, that's punishment. That's awful. That's hell. So you have that picture of hell 
contrasted with, with eternity, which again has the tree of life, which the leaves of which are described as you know, symbolically saying that this is actually for the healing of the generations. So one of the amazing things about heaven is that you've got all this baggage through the garbage of human history, all of a sudden experiencing the flip side of the coin and the healing of that. And so what, Paul, what John is saying to his early followers is this, or the, the people in the church is, the thing that you need to know is that you need to see the future realistically. This Jesus that you have your faith in, do not bail on him. Don't jump ship because he is going to return. He is going to reign and he's going to restore. He's going to return because the cross happened. And we don't know when he's coming back, but he's coming back. And if you want to put us on the timeline, we can do that. Bing, look, we made it. We're on the timeline. 2018, has Jesus returned yet? Not a, not a trick question. Yeah, he is not. Just, just be here and you know that he hasn't. Turn on the news and you know that he hasn't. He has not returned yet. So for 2,000 years, what are we doing? We're waiting for him. But we're not just like sitting. We're waiting. We're on mission. He's given us mission. But we're still waiting. John says one day he's going to return. And, and so we, we see Jesus return and then we have this like a picture of seven years of, of, of God's judgment where God's like, okay, I'm wrapping this up and I'm, I'm judging this world. I'm judging with wrath this world that has been running away from me. And so it describes this seven years of judgment or tribulation. And those might be metaphorical or they might be literal years. We do not know. But Christians either say Jesus is going to come at the beginning of them because God loves us. I mean, he loves us, and he doesn't want us to go through garbage. He doesn't want us as kids to go through wrath. So he's going to take us out of the equation before all the wrath happens. And so they put Jesus returning before. Other Christians are like, nah, have you read history? Have you looked at Christian history? Christians go through lots of garbagey situations. And to points where they could be questioning, like, God, if you really loved me, why would you make it so difficult to follow you? Why would you make it so difficult where this is illegal for me to follow you? If you really, they weren't saying that. They were saying, we are going through the worst of the worst, and yet God is going with it, going through it with us. And so they'd say, no, God's not going to spare us from that, but we're not going to go through it alone. The world's going to be flipping out and freaking out, but we're going to actually have peace and security because our peace and security is not incumbent upon our circumstances, but upon our Savior. And so they believe that Jesus is coming afterwards. And then there's other Christians who read Goldilocks and the Three Bears. And they're not, not, not before, not after, right in the middle. And they're like, yeah, that's about where he's going to come in. <laughs> and so it's like before like the really bad wrath stuff happens, that's when Jesus is going to come. Now, it may shock you that Christians disagree on stuff. <laughs> but they do. And they spend a lot of time disagreeing on this. And, and people in our church are very invested and they've got good convictions on this. Not bad at all to have good convictions. But you know what they all agree on? They all agree on this. The fact that he, in fact, is going to return. He's really going to return. And if you're a Christian, that's what you put your faith in. It's imminent. In our articles of faith, that's what we say. It, his, the return of Christ is imminent. Is it going to happen today? No clue. Going to happen in a year? No, a thousand? I've got no idea. But it's going to happen. And not only is he going to return, but he's also returning and reigning. John wanted to make it very clear that Jesus' return also is ushering his leadership in. And, and some people say it's going to be a thousand years. Some people say, no, it's just figurative. It's not a thousand years. It's just a metaphor. But it, his, his rulership is coming back. And that's a big deal. Because I don't know if you've noticed it, but human leaders, putting your faith in human leadership politically stinks, Right? It's very, I don't know if you've ever felt conflicted about a vote before. Let's just say it happens hypothetically from time to time. We are like, ah, oh, I can't vote for, oh, but I, can't. Oh, I don't know. That doesn't happen with Jesus. You know why? 
because there's, there's a good catchphrase that we have about politics and power. Absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely, unless it's Jesus. Absolute power always corrupts when a human being acts like God but isn't. Absolute power does not corrupt if you are God. Jesus' rule coming to earth will be something that will be a mind-blowing experience of realizing, oh, that's the way it was supposed to look like because he will rule consistently, purely, wholly, righteously, not corruptly, not manipulatively, not messed up. Now, whether or not it's a thousand years or that's a metaphor or we're already in the thousand years, Christians disagree on that. And Christians in our church disagree on that. You know what they all agree on? The fact that he's actually going to reign. He's going to reign and he's going to rule and we could trust him on that. And that rulership is not just ruling to rule, but to restore. This is the thing that a lot of people are looking forward to is the fact that he is going to restore us. He's going to restore this planet. That, that um, a lot of times we see this picture of... Um, this idea that we're evacuating, that heaven's going to be us evacuating out and going, bing, 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 yeah! I remember thinking about that, like, oh man, when Jesus comes, I'm just going to... <laughs> now, there is that, that passage about us meeting Jesus in the sky when he returns, but we, we have a bigger picture of God not just kicking this planet and this solar system to the curb, but actually God restoring it. Christians get the idea of God kicking the planet to the curb because it's described as ending in, in a ball of fire. But that, that's the old earth passing away. Scripture all throughout describes um, fire as a refining process. It's like you've got metal that's got a ton of garbage in it. It's in its raw form. You put it through the refining fire and all of a sudden you get purity. And so what, what is it that you love about earth? What is it that you love about the solar system and the universe that we occupy? Because eternity is going to be you unpacking the astrophysics of what God has accomplished and giving him praise. Holy are you. Look what you've done. You've seen the restoration of this planet. You see, it's not this bing, bing, bing going up. It's actually his impact coming down here and not recycling earth, restoring it all together, restoring it all together. Now, the importance about understanding a, a proper view of hell and a proper view of, proper view of heaven does something to us now. And that's number two, what John was trying to do. It actually helps us see how our current context is contrasted. Go ahead and look at Revelation 21 verses one through four. It's on the next page. Or actually, uh, it's the next, next verse, uh, page 467. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, doing what? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Okay, hold on a sec. Some of you were brides at one point, okay? I've done like 70-something weddings, and there's very few exceptions to this, but usually the bride cares about what she looks like on that day. Just a little bit. In fact, it's a, it's a stressor sometimes in families because mother-in-laws or mothers have a different opinion of how she should look than she should, thinks she should look. It happens every once in a while. But here's the thing. I never have understood that. I remember back when Julie and I got married, I'm like, just, just show up. I mean, that's the bar. If you show up, Julie, I'm good. I don't care if you're wearing a dress, if you're wearing a top hat. I don't care. Just please, just be there. That's it. Now, the thing is that, that, that the fact that John is a keen observer of human nature, to realize that in the first century, 
brides really cared about the way they looked and they put intentionality and design and, and what, what type of a dress they were wearing, how they looked on that day. And the fact that when they walk down the aisle, everyone goes, because he said, that's what it's gonna be like. When the new heavens and the new earth and the city of New Jerusalem comes down, it's gonna be like that where everyone's like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. It's beautiful. He continues on. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. Again, God's getting his, his dream all along from the very beginning and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's him quoting the, the prophet Hosea who said that, you know what? You're not my people, but one day, one day you're gonna be my people. You're distant from me, you're divorced from me, but one day I'm bringing you back, I'm bringing you back. They will be his people and God himself will be with them, be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That, that order that you and I occupy and, and live out like it's reality, it will no longer be so. And that, that's huge because if we're able to see how heaven is and how hell is, we can actually look at 2018 differently because what we oftentimes do is confuse the two. But we need to remember, no, as good as this is, it's not heaven. As bad as your day may be, it's not hell. Within art, though, we can see that humans consistently confuse things on this earth as being heaven or being hell. Just look at the heaven side of things with Brian Adams. Of course we got to go to Brian Adams. Listen, baby, you're all that I want. When you're lying here in my arms, I'm finding it hard to believe. What? Oh, you've heard the song. Yes, we're in heaven. And love is all that I need. And I found it there in your heart. It isn't too hard to see. We're in heaven. Poor Brian. Brian grows up. I don't know his story, but I'm just going to project on him. He grows up and he's just like, he's never respected by his mom and dad. Like they always treat him like a kid because he is. And then he gets up and he grows up and he, and he starts going to school and his teachers tell him to do homework and they tell him that you're not doing a good job on this. He's like, oh, I just want to play my six string. And so he starts playing his six string and people are like, this is great. And then he finds her. Her. You know who she is whoever it is. And all of a sudden he finds her and he realizes she sees him differently. She respects him and admires him differently than her, his parents or anyone else in his life growing up. They all disrespected him, thought he was a joke, but she, whew, he's amazing and lying here in his arms. This is heaven. Why? Because this person has cut all the hell away from my life. And now finally, I, I am accepted. I am in a good place. This is amazing. I'm finding it hard to believe we're in heaven. Brian Adams, right? Alphaville, one of my favorite songs, Forever Young. Oh, Alphaville. This is, I love this. Like when, um, when people in my age and older were just totally burning um, high schoolers and junior hires who are doing the Tide, the Tide Pod Challenge thing, which is admittedly stupid, but, uh, but, but like trash, like, oh, what a generation, you know, and stuff like that. And someone who is from the younger generation who's on Facebook, which I think there's 13 of them maybe globally, but they, they smashed back and they started stuff, putting stuff like this up. It's like, well, yeah, we didn't do this though. <laughs> Alphaville though, Alphaville writes Forever Young and they start the song in something that we all understand and embrace. Let's dance in style. Let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait. We're only watching the skies. They said it the way that we live it. Because every one of us, have, if you're a Christian, if you grew up as a Christian, you had this idea in your head, oh, I can't wait for heaven. I'm so excited for heaven. But I've got a short list of things I'd like to do first. 
I want to be married or I want to have a job or I want to get this accomplishment or I want to do this or I got to buy the truck or I got to, I'm so excited about heaven. It's going to be better than anything on this planet, but let's wait for it just a little bit. Alphaville nailed it and they said it right, but so did Belinda Carlisle. Belinda Carlisle, she says, oh baby, do you know what that's worth? Oh, heaven is what? That's right. They say in heaven, love comes first. We'll make heaven a place on earth. You know what? I heard about heaven. Love. I like love. Let's like, like heaven can be here. It could be now. And so this whole concept is something that, that we understand and we embrace as humans. But here's the thing. Having a proper view of hell and a proper view of heaven does something for us now. It does this. You might be in a good place. Let's say you have a good relationship. Let's say that you found her. She's the one. You're like, oh, but guess what? It's not. It's not heaven. Let's say that you like, you get the accomplishment or the grades or you got the scholarship or the job. You're like, this is just amazing. It is amazing. But guess what? It's not heaven. Let's say you moved to Manuka. Not heaven. West Virginia, almost. But it's not heaven. Not only that, conversely, you're going through something garbagey, terrible. You have been betrayed. You have been rejected. You're, you lost a job. They left you. You got the disease. You got well, all these different things that could happen to you. You lost this person. And you're like, I am walking through a literal hell. No, you're not. You are walking through the flirtation of hell, the scent of hell, the billboard of hell, but not hell. No. Hell is the without hope. Hell is the beyond reach. You still have hope. This may be bad, but it's not hell. And so what we can recognize is that we often mistake aspects of this world as heaven that have too much hell in them to be so. Or write off moments as hell that are actually God orchestrating an ultimate heaven. The hell you may be going through following a Savior who is like the Savior we see in Scripture actually could be orchestrated into something that is ultimately glory. And if not for you, for someone else, recognize that we often, expect, we often mistake aspects of this world as heaven that have too much hell in them to be so or write off moments as hell that actually God is orchestrating an ultimate heaven. This is good, but it's not heaven. This may be bad, but it's not hell. You have hope which is actually one of the, the great things that we can actually step into the third reason that, that he wrote this book, I believe, that God wanted him to pass it on to the church, to live out now, to live out now the future destination we will eventually embody, to live it out now. And, and you take a look and you see what, what he says, if you look on the next page or two pages over, if you're in the story, and it's not 479, it's 469. And then it's Revelation 22, 12 to 17. I'm just gonna go from where it says, look, I'm coming soon. This is Jesus saying, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash the robes that they may be, have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexual immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That's a description, folks, of humanity. Our humanity. Our backstory. The lies and the gossip and the, the manipulation and the misdeeds that we, we, we've all, this is us. And so the cool thing about what Jesus is saying is there's a difference, and the difference is me. Those who have who've sought forgiveness, those, those who are in hell have, 
the full recognition, I deserve to be here. And, and if I didn't think about it before this, I, I get it now, I deserve to be here. Those in heaven say, I don't deserve to be here. I deserve to be there, but because of Jesus, because he's forgiven me, before I, I, I've, been rece- I've received his forgiveness, I experienced that. Blessed are those who, and he goes on from there. He said, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come, and the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life come. We need to live out now the future destination we will embody. Let the confidence in your future destination motivate your current decision. Here's the problem. With Christians, this is one of the big problems with Christians. They think, I'm going to heaven, and so my life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I live. Um, Back in 2011, there was a guy who made a prediction that the world was going to end on May something 2011. Do you remember that? It's one of the many people who's like, I know the date. And, uh, and so lots of people were like, oh, okay, well, hey, the God, Jesus is coming back, and so I'm just going to sell everything I've got. I'm just going just to get ready for this. And, and they, they, it wasn't like they were ramping up the good that they were doing. The more they were just like just getting isolated on, I'm going to go to heaven. Bring it on. Let's go. When the reality is, is that when the disciples did the same thing to Jesus, when are you returning? He said, don't worry about that. You have a mission. Until you take your last breath or until I return, you have a mission I called up this guy's um, radio station because he had a radio station nationally. And, and I just was, I wanted to talk to him. And so I call up and I didn't get him. It was a shocker. But I said, hey, I heard you guys believe that, that Jesus is returning on May 21st of this, May 21st, 2011, right? Oh, yeah. Like you, you guys are like locked in on that, like for sure? Yeah, absolutely for sure. We're, so you're going to be gone May 22nd. Is that right? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm not going to be, I'm pretty sure. Um, and so I was wondering if you could donate to Manuka Bible Church all of your sound equipment because we could use it. And since you guys won't need it, right, we could use it. And so, in fact, I could send some trucks over there today because, like, we're within, like, a week now of the main event. So if you could do that, that would be awesome. And the, there, I love the lady on the phone. She was like, I, uh, we, we don't do that. Of course you don't do that. The reason that you don't do this is because there's like, well, maybe. Here's the thing. The more fixated on the eternity that you have, the more fixated on the fact that I'm going to heaven, that should motivate actual good and change throughout your life. Here's the problem, again. If our confidence in where we're going to spend our eternity and who we're going to spend our eternity with, Jesus, does not impact our everyday life decisions, if our confidence, I'm going to heaven, does not impact our everyday life decisions now, then perhaps we've misunderstood where we're going or we've miscalculated where we're going. Because scripture seems to say that Jesus did not save you for eternity. He saved you to come to him starting now, which leads into eternity, which means that the actions that we live out from the moment of our salvation, and nobody's perfect here, but from the moment of our salvation, we start saying, I'm going to live out the type of life now that he's called me into for eternity. So I don't get to eternity and I'm I'm blindsided like, whoa, this is different. But I can actually walk through the reality of what he's called me into now. That means that that these things actually happen now. It's going to motivate Jesus-like actions now. There's people I really don't care to love. Well, fine. It doesn't matter if you care to love them. Jesus has called you to love them. Jesus called you to love people even that you hate, that you disagree with. Let that motivate his actions now. Jesus was holy. 
You're like, yeah, but it's too hard. No, you're right. But with Jesus, you can actually follow his lead and let holiness come into your relationships, into your marriage, into the, your workplace, into the way that you do your schoolwork, the way you choose not to cheat. You can actually do that now, not because you're a moral person or you're polishing yourself up for Sunday, but because of the fact that you're like living out the reality Jesus has bought for you that you're going to be experiencing for eternity. You could do that now. You could also let it motivate peace and forgiveness now. Tons of people, and I'm, I'm one of these people, find it super great that God has forgiven us. And we're super cool not giving that to people we don't want to. Like, I love God's forgiveness. I just want to keep it to myself. If you are someone destined for the eternity bought by a Savior who forgave you, let the forgiveness start now. And that person that you're thinking about that you, had a major, you have got a major grudge with and you got big time distance between, what if you didn't just say, well, I'm just kicking this down the, you know, kicking this down the street and waiting to forgive them when I feel like it. No, you're not going to feel like it. One day you're going to die or they're going to die. Do it today. Say what you need to today and forgive them today. Because that forgiveness is something that you're living out now that will echo on into eternity and celebrating the forgiveness you have there. Let it motivate peace and forgiveness now. Let it motivate hope now. It's very, very easy for Christians in 2018 to start saying things that we've said for 2,000 years and it's like, God, why is it that you're letting this happen? Why this tragedy? Why this difficulty? Why this disaster? And if there was no eternity, if this is all we've got and, and all we have is following Jesus until we die, then that's it. Curtains, nothing else after that. Well, then we could say, God, you've wasted my life. However, if we have a proper view of eternity, heaven and hell, and that actually comes in and impacts our current context by helping us understand the difference, and it leads to actions, then we actually have hope because we realize that this, in fact, is the chopper. That we are, as we're going through this difficulty in our family, as we're going through this difficulty in this relationship, as we're going through this difficulty at work, we can say, yes, this is overbearingly difficult, but it is not all that there is. One day, he is going to make all things new. I've told this story before, but Tim Keller um, tells about how he always had a hard, he's a pastor and a writer, but he always had a hard time with Romans 8.28. You know, that I, I work all things out for the good of those who love him. It's like, that's a good verse to think of if you get fired from your job and it's totally unjust and the next day you get a better job for like twice the pay. Then you're like, Romans 8.28, way to weave it together, God. But if you don't have that, you have the tragedy without the happy ending. You have the death and there's no coming back from that. You have the, the disaster or the disease or the divorce. And all of a sudden you're like, this is all that there is. We're reminded by the chopper of scripture of the hope. And this is what, what Tim Keller says. He says, this, the first time I understood that verse properly was this. I was having a terrible nightmare. And the nightmare was about this home invader that had come into our house. He kicked the door down and, um, and I wasn't there, but I'm, I'm having the dream. So I'm watching everything, every brutal second of this guy entering our house. And then he goes and he finds my wife and my daughter's and he brutally murders them. And I'm watching every second of it. And I can't do anything. And I start to cry, and I'm, like, it's in, I'm in my dream, but I'm crying, I'm crying. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it where you've been crying in a dream, but then you wake up and you're still crying. And he said, I'm just bawling my eyes out. I'm burying my hands, my head in my hands because I'm just realizing how awful this reality is until I heard something. I heard the voices of my wife and my daughters downstairs. 
He says, I got up, I threw the, the blankets off, and I sprinted down the stairs. Whoosh, I would go right over them, and I just grabbed them. Whoosh, and I pulled them together, and I'm like kissing them. I'm like, I love you. I love you. I love you guys so much. Like, whoa, Dad, whoa, whoa. Whoa. What is wrong with you? And he said, Tim, Tim Keller says, that was the moment I realized what Romans 8, Romans 8.20 is all about. There's certain things that we will never see the positive side of until eternity. But he says, that's, that's what's amazing about eternity because eternity is us waking up and realizing the nightmare is over. And what was true in the nightmare is no longer true now. You've lost someone. You've lost someone who's in the Lord. You will have that embrace. And you get that reality for eternity. You, you, you've actually gone through some of the deepest, most, most difficult things where you feel like there's things I know Jesus has forgiven me from, but I feel like I'm still like hauling this behind me and there's no way that I could actually get over this completely. When you wake up in eternity, all of a sudden you look back and you realize that Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, now that you're in eternity, has undone all of that. And you're in the new reality of him making all the nightmare untrue. And the new reality is glorious. It is hopeful. Live out now the future destination that we will embody. Let the confidence in your future destination motivate your current decisions. And I'm going to end with this. I, I showed this picture last week of my favorite two feet in Minooka. The two feet, which is the end of uh, like a three-mile run that I do at Lions Park, which is a bunch of hills. And the, this is the final hill. And it's right where I, I give myself permission to stop running when, I, when the grass meets the blacktop of this walking path. And then that's just like when you can go... <sighs> It's done. The run is done. I can relax. I can enjoy the fact that it's over. And one day you'll have that. The race will come to a, a your race will come to an end. And you'll breathe the reality that the race is over. You've entered into your rest. And it's not sleeping rest. It's not apathy. It's not laziness. It's purpose and passion and discovery for eternity with the Savior who afforded that for you. If that's not you, I want to give you an opportunity to make that your reality right now, which is simply saying, I'm not running away from Jesus anymore. I'm choosing to be, put, put my trust in what he accomplished on the cross and run with him from this point to eternity. If you are a Christian, I want to give you a chance to just say, I want to let my confidence in my future destination impact my current reality now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know this to be true, and so we're, I'm just going to cut to the chase. Lord, for the believers in this room who've, who've operated on a, a cruise control mode of believing the right things and knowing that they're going to catch up with you in eternity, Lord, I pray that you alter that course and allow eternity to impact their everyday life, to actually allow bits and pieces of their eternal reality of heaven impact the more broken aspects of their everyday life here. Lord, I pray that whether that's their relationship, their marriage, their schoolwork, their job, whatever it is, they'll surrender that to you. Lord, for those in this room that wouldn't say, they wouldn't self-identify as a Christian, but they realize that they want to be. They want to follow your lead. They want to be forgiven by what you've accomplished on the cross walk with you through this life and one day see you face to face. Lord, I pray that they right now simply repent to you the fact that they've lived a life away from you, but they're giving that over to you to forgive and for them to experience the liberation that comes from 
your grace. Lord, I pray that you guide them from this point on. We'll give you thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.